All right. Hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have the founder of Net Interest, Mark Rubenstein. Mark, how are you doing? I'm all right, Andrew. Thanks. It's great to be on. Great. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on the pod. And let me start this pod the way I do every podcast, and that's by plugging you. You know, I'd say uh, I've, everyone I've had on here so far, you're the person who I was, as of like two or three months ago, the person I was least familiar with. You started publishing Net Interest, I think, was it March or April? And the moment you started publishing, someone, a couple of my friends who I really respect were like, you need to read this. This is going to be must read. It's going to make you a lot smarter. So I subscribed and they were 100% right. You know, it's uh, about once every other week, I'd say, once a week, once every other week, and it covers the financial sector. And what I really love about it is it's not just the hottest topics of the financial sector of the day. I love kind of the financial history you bring. So like one example I was kind of thinking of when I was prepping for this is you did a cautionary tale of equity research that went through all of the history of equity research through the 60s and 70s and had a bunch of anecdotes from the late 90s, early 2000s with Elliot Spitzer cracking down. And, you know, that's just something it takes a lot of industry knowledge and not of expertise, a lot of expertise. It's really interesting to anyone. So I've really loved uh, I've really loved Net Interest. That plug out the way. Can you just kind of dive into your background and how you came to start Net Interest? Well, that's a good segue, Andrew. Actually, because my—I mean, if we go, if we if we go back to to the to the to the genesis of my career, it started in equity research. So I came out of college, and I was thrown straight into the equity research department of a major investment bank, uh, and I was thrown into the bank sector. Mm-hmm. So I had no background in banks whatsoever. Didn't even know I wanted to do equity research whilst I was at college, uh, but there I was covering. European banks at a time before the single currency where the European markets were a disparate collection of of discrete markets. Uh, And I did that for 10, 12 years uh, through the Elliott Spitzer period. Um, And then after about 10 years, I switched over to the buy side. So like a lot of equity research, sell side people, I switched over and went to work for my favorite client. Um, so I got a call 2006 from my favorite client, and like a shot, I went straight over there. And this was just before the financial crisis. And it was specifically to run and uh, analyze companies within the financial services sector. So it was a, it was a, it was a financials focused fund, long short. Yep. One of the longest, one of the oldest hedge fund funds uh, in, in in Europe based in London, uh, which had launched a long short financials fund uh, about a year or so before I joined. So I joined to be part of that, had a couple of, had had about a year before the financial crisis and then boom, straight into the thick of it, through the financial crisis, we were long short financial services stocks globally. Um, did okay. We can talk about that. Did okay during the financial crisis, came out of it. Um, and I, and as everybody knows, trading financial services stocks wasn't the same post-financial crisis mm-hmm. as it was pre or during the financial crisis, although it took us a while to understand that. Um, and so we uh, continued to run the fund through until 2016. In 2016, we liquidated the fund um, and I took some time out. Uh, I went back to college for a year, which was fun. Awesome. I've never done an MBA um, and thought it would be fun to do something like an MBA. So I went back to college for a year um, to immerse myself in non-financial services 
oriented parts of uh, the market and and then set up a consulting business um you know was doing that right until covid hit and then covid hit you know boom again you know consulting um projects dried up and and launched that interest um and 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 i've been writing that on a weekly basis the focus is financial sector themes and i've just been overwhelmed by the degree to which it's uh, picked up picked up momentum yeah and i one of the other things i I like about net interest is i you know, you say financial sector and financial services. And, you know, in my head, I think, oh, he's going to be covering JP Morgan and Wells Fargo. And maybe if I'm lucky, he'll get really spicy and cover Visa and MasterCard or something. But, you know, I, I think you even said in your your intro, it was, you said, look, use the Enron quote where somebody said, I cover banks and they can put balance sheets out, but you can't put a balance sheet out with your earnings. And the Enron guy famously called him an asshole for saying that. And you say, look, every company or many companies can be like financial service firms in disguise. And I really like how a lot of what you cover is companies that are financial service firms in disguise, I would say. Um, so let's dive back into the financial crisis. So, you know, you mentioned working for a long short, long short fund in the financial crisis. What, what was that like? Like, what was your experience like? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, long short service firms, while 80% of them are blowing up in the financial crisis, that's a time for alpha. But, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I also think it doesn't matter if you're long or short, like in a crisis, just everything is straight down. So what was your experience like there? Take us through some more stories. Yeah. So, I mean, the first point is that, you know, it really was a front row seat. So I think, um, unlike, I think one of the reasons why I think, well, unlike subsequent crises, that crisis started in the financial sector, the, and it started in the financial sector materially earlier than became evident across the broader market. So, you know, and I would say it started in the financial sector in 2006. So in 2006, you know, I was covering, I uh, joined the fund. Um, we, I inherited a short position in New Century, which was a, a, a pure play subprime lender. Um, and I was monitoring the uh, developments in subprime from 2006. And, and already, you know, in 2006, there was a trend of so-called early payment defaults, um, you know, and this idea and, and, you know, partly because I was an outsider, you know, I was sitting in London, I was sitting in an office in Mayfair in London, mm-hmm. looking at the subprime industry, you know, n- not really knowing that much about it. So, you know, the first question that arose was why would somebody who had just taken out a mortgage default within the first three months of having taken out that mortgage? And this trend was going up. Um, so we saw that through 2006 into 2007. You know, actually, New Century went, went bust in February 2007. HSBC, which had done this huge acquisition in the US in the subprime space, had a huge profit warning uh, in 2007. So already the beginning of 2007, end of 2006, you, you know, something clearly was, was going awry. Um, and, and I think what gave us what gave us an advantage as a financials only fund is that is that is that this was happening in the periphery of the financials industry. So mm-hmm. we saw it, and we were able to trace it. So by the summer of two thousand and seven, it hit Europe. In the summer of two thousand and seven, famously, you know, and people kind of debate what marks the beginning of the financial crisis. But in the summer of two thousand and seven, some of the uh, French run funds um, basically um, had, had, had an issue. 
um, in the summer of 2007, one of the German banks started to suffer issues. And then by the, by the autumn of 2007, um, some UK banks were starting to have issues as well. So it was happening. So we were, we were able to draw, but by being global and by being involved in financial services, we were able to draw some of these dots. Um, and so, and, and that was a huge, and it was a huge, it was a very fertile area for long short, because at the time, um, at the time there were elements of financial services you know, you mentioned Visa at the beginning of this uh, of this chat. You know, Visa went public in March of two thousand and eight. We were involved yep. in the IPO, so you know there was an opportunity to be long and there was an opportunity to be short. And actually, you know, it was the first. You know, if we roll forward through Lehman, obviously people are more familiar with that period. Through into the first quarter of two thousand and nine, first quarter of two thousand and nine, you had huge dispersion between the brokers which were recovering already. They were the first in, they were the first out of the crisis. So, you know, Goldman's performance was very, very strong in the first quarter of 2009. Citigroup's was very, very weak. It was kind of last in, last out. Um, Chinese banks, we were um, long, uh, some of those as well, uh, performing very strongly because the China, because China was pumping liquidity um, via the banks into uh, into its market, they were performing very strongly. So we had huge dispersion. It was almost a golden era for long short financial services. Um, that changed, and I would say, you know, one thing, one of the difficulties in investment is 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 having that awareness to change one's mental models. Yep, mental model that changed that we were that I. Was 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 slow to get onto, was that was 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 regulation yep. was the impact, you know, and it's a theme we can talk about as well because it's something I've addressed in that interest. Was this idea that regulators were inserting themselves almost into the capital structure of financial services companies, combined with low interest rates, which basically turned banks and financial services broadly with the exception of some tech orientated ones in, into a macro trade. Yep. yep. Uh, and that macro trade was, you know, it was all about regulation. It was all about rates and that dispersion, which long short thrives on diminished. And, you know, since then, and it's been 10 years plus, uh, we've had very, very high degree of correlation even between markets. You know, I mentioned China earlier, but that correlation has, uh, has gone, has gone close to one between China, between US banks, uh, between banks globally, and it's driven by interest rates and it's driven by regulation. And that was a mental model that I was slow to cotton on to, and it, it cost a little bit of performance kind of in the early part of that financial uh, crisis aftermath. No, look, I think it's the hardest part about being an investor in anything today, right? Like the, the example I always use is 40 years ago, it would have been easy enough for you and me to go out and kind of flip through the newspaper and say, oh, here's 10 stocks trading at six times price to earnings. We're going to buy all 10 and we could probably expect to outperform the market over time. And today, you know, I would say if you go out and you do it that simply, you're probably going to get your head blown off because it, all you're doing is replicating what a quant model could do. And uh, I agree with you, you know, the, the markets, if you compare the bank regulation market of 2005 to today, like you're, it's just apples to oranges. There's no comparison. Let me ask you, you know, you, we talked about the financial crisis a decent bit. When I look at today, you know, unemployment is around 10%. And uh, I think, 
obviously there's a lot more liquidity in the system thanks to the Fed. But when I look at the unemployment numbers, the uncertainty out there, like if you had told me at the start of the year, this is what right now would look like, there's a lot of things I would think that haven't come true. But one of the things I would certainly think is the banks would have blown up, right? Like credit losses would be off the charts. The banks would be reserving, raising equity. Everyone would be freaking out. And when you look at the sector, like that's really not what not what's happening. You know, a lot of the banks still trade at or above tangible book values. Like they're taking credit losses, but they're fine. But what do you think the difference is between, you know, unemployment today is higher than it was in the financial crisis? What's the difference today than 10 years ago? Well, there's probably three differences. I think one is uh, the one is the banks universally have got more capital now than they had going into the crisis. I mean, it's something they bleat on about all the time. Um, you know, there are still corners of regulatory and policymaker circles um, that argue they need more capital, um, but they've got uh, they've got just, they've just got more capital than they had going into the financial crisis. Um, Second reason is that, uh, and this is interesting because this was an accounting change that was introduced really just in the nick of time. It was yep. the, the accounting change. It was the Cecil accounting change yep. Yep. that was introduced just in time almost for COVID. And what it required banks to do, and they did it in the first quarter of this year in the US, and there's a, an equivalent in um, Europe as well, is to, is to front load provisioning. Um, interestingly, they had the earnings to front load provisioning because markets businesses, because of volatility, were doing so well. Yep. So, you know, this kind of, you know, if regulators got one thing, you know, you know the one thing I've learned about regulation over the years is that it always has unintended consequences. And typically those unintended consequences can be more onerous and as an, observer more interesting than the consequences that they're meant to inform but um one thing there was you know thinking about volker um and thinking about ring fencing in the uk one thing there was a lot of momentum towards was to break up banks into broker dealers or investment banks on the one side and kind of retail banks on the other and never happened you know fortuitously it never happened because the likes of JP Morgan, the likes of Citigroup had huge markets, capital markets orientated revenues to uh, extract in the first quarter that enabled them to shore up their provisioning yep. through CISA ahead of potential um, economic collapse. And so, you know, that's the second reason is that they've just provisioned up front to a degree that they weren't able to do 10 years ago. And then the third reason is obviously government more fiscal interventions. So, uh, I mean, you know, just any model any classical credit card model would have, you know, you say unemployment at 10%, would have had unemployment at 10%, charge off rates commensurately high. But, you know, what that model wouldn't have factored in is fiscal injections to the extent we've seen um, globally. And so you, you've seen just a disconnect in that classical model between unemployment and, and charge offs. Um, yeah. Now, clearly, how long that sustains is an interesting question that's. That explains why bank valuations are where they are, I guess. And we, you mentioned, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. If the answer is no, uh, feel free to say you don't, you haven't thought it through fully. But you know, I agree with you when you say regulation can often be uh, quite onerous. But I also think it can present some opportunities that a lot of people aren't thinking of. So, like, 
right now coming out of COVID, uh, you know, I think the regulations are still a little bit in flux, to be honest with you. But coming out of COVID, are there any regulations with unintended consequences that you're kind of like seeing opportunities in? Coming out of it's a, it's a really interesting question. Coming out of COVID, I don't know, but you know, a space I've been looking at quite a lot recently, and I've done within that interest a couple of posts, um, and I did a guest post in nap, Napkin Math mm-hmm. uh, as well, which is um, part of the Everything Bundle, also a Substack um, 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 blog. It is uh, is the exchanges. I've been looking very heavily at exchanges, and if there's one subsector that has been the winner you know because the other thing you know if regulation has unintended consequences then by the same token for, you know it's not quite zero sum but for every loser there's a winner and i think yep. the winner from the bearing down of regulation on the banks has been and continues to be the exchanges um you know whether it's taking libel away from the banks um the exchanges could be a beneficiary of that. Whether it's, um, you know, just last week we saw the, um, there's a whole debate around, you know, and we may go on to talk about SPACs and, and IPOs and so on. But Oh, we're talking you know, about SPACs. Good, good. I've well, read your post as well, so there's plenty to talk about. But um, the New York Stock Exchange announced last week that it's going to allow primary direct listings on the exchange. So companies... Actually, there's been a bit of a wrinkle there. The, the SEC have put a hold on it. But it seems likely that in spite of that, companies will be able to directly list on the new exchange and raise capital. Um, you know, that's basically a shift in the balance of power away from banks, which control the IPO process, to exchanges. There's a whole list of these examples where exchanges are the beneficiaries of these, of these regulations. Um, coming out of COVID... I, I don't know. I suspect, you know, people talk about COVID as being the great accelerator. Um, and so, you know, a lot of those trends we've seen already, be they a shift in the balance of power from ex- from banks towards exchanges could, could equally be accelerated. Um, it's difficult to discern a specific COVID-related, probably the impact, and certainly in the UK, there's a lot of political, um, there's a lot of political backlash how that impacts the banks, you know, it could be, they say the banks could be the beneficiaries that say, you know, people have said the banks themselves have said this time, unlike last time we're the solution, not the problem. Yep. And if that can be proven, then maybe the pendulum swings back towards them. Yeah. I do think with banks, uh, I, I mean, cable companies are obviously a completely different animal, but banks, cable companies, a lot of these really big companies that are traditionally villains of much anyone you know there a bank after 2008 was an easy punching bag for any politician a cable company has always been an easy punching bag but i do think they bought themselves a lot of goodwill with the banks you know they were there for their customers they stepped up i think a lot of them uh kind of avoided really putting the hammer on credit card debt and people who to people who had been affected by covid with the cable companies the reason i mentioned it is they weren't disconnecting people who lost their job and couldn't pay for their internet and obviously that would have been a disaster if they had you know you're basically cutting someone out from the world when they're stuck at home and don't have internet. So I do think they've bought bought themselves a lot of goodwill. And, you know, it's just interesting, like 
six months from now, it's tough to tell how any of this is going to look, right? Like we don't know what the political environment is going to look like, which is obviously very important for these guys for regulation. We have no idea what type, you know, do we continue with a V economy? Is there a vaccine? Like it's just, it's such a strange time. And I kind of think like back to your old days, it's going to be a very fertile time for the type of long, short investing that you use to practice and still obviously follow very closely. Yeah, I think think that's right. And I think, I I think, you know, there is a bull case to be made for banks. Um, you know, clearly it's not reflected. I mean, there's a, there's, you know, clearly the bear case is winning out and the bear case revolves around some of the things we've spoken about, about interest rates uh, and about policymakers kind of inserting themselves in the stack uh, and influencing capital allocation. I mean, you know, when we look, you know, as kind of value investors, you know, capital allocation is, um, is, is a, you know, it's a dominant theme. And if a company doesn't have control over its own capital allocation, i.e. cannot decide whether it's M&A, you know, kind of Wells Fargo is cut out of that market historically, uh, or whether it's buybacks or or, or dividends and the banks are being cut out of that right now. Um, Not having the ability to steer one's own capital allocation strategy kind of makes, it, it kind of degrades your position as a shareholder below that of the policymaker, um, which obviously degrades the overall uh, equity story. But there is a bull case on the other side of that, if we come out of that, which is the, this consolidation of market share that's taking place. You know, you look at the influx of deposits into the US banking system and, 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 the, sh- and the flow towards the bigger players is kind of a feature across across most industries is that the bigger getting bigger and that's true um, and that's in spite of regulation wanting to kind of enhance competition in the banking sector um, you know another theme I often I write about quite a lot um, one of my other hats is as an active angel investor in fintech mm-hmm. um, and one of the other themes that I write about a lot is fintech yeah. and you know kind of coming into covid there was a view that this would be fintech's time. You know, fintech; these are the innovators. These are the um, they offer speed. They, they offer a digital solution, and it just hasn't been. It just hasn't been the case. I mean, there are some exceptions. There are some exceptions. Square, but it just hasn't. But broadly, the smaller ones, the startups, um, some of the challenger banks, of which the UK has been a big uh, testing ground, are, are struggling. No, this is, it's actually something I think you wrote about about a month and a half ago, right? Like the big banks, it, I agree with you. Like if you had told me coming into COVID, it's like, hey, the big banks have a physical footprint, right? That's closed and management's going to have to spend time worrying about that closing. The big banks obviously are much higher concern for regulators than all of these legacy guys. And they're going to have way more loans and loan losses than the, the startups. So if you had told me coming into COVID, oh, and big banks, because they're so bureaucratic, they're probably going to be slower to shift and adapt to technology. So coming into COVID, I would have said, if you're a startup bank, you know, a SoFi or something like this, I would have guessed they were going to see huge share increases. And they, you know, similar to, it's a looser comparison, but similar to Amazon and all these online retailers just pulled tons of share forward because they, uh, all of their physical competitors were closed. I would have guessed all the kind of innovative fintech players were just going to slaughter in this environment. And it doesn't seem to have played out. In fact, the opposite. So could you dive a little bit more into why the big banks have held up so well and maybe even taken share in this environment? I think part, I think partly, it, partly to the extent that they are, quasi arms of government yeah. through the fact that policymakers have inserted themselves in the capital stack 
uh, figuratively. Um, you, you know, the, 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 the challenge was to get money out there into the economy quickly. And, 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 and that requires scale. Um, and so, you, you know, if you look at, you know, and I looked at a number of markets, um, you, you, you know, the UK and the US and a number of the European markets, they, they went, they, the, the authorities were slow to authorize fintechs to disperse, whether it was PPP or the equivalents in Europe and the UK. Um, and the big banks didn't do such a good job necessarily. And there were question marks about the way that was done. But they were there and they were able to do it quickly. And they, had, they were able, more about they had the scale to do it quickly. Um, and the same when it comes to deposits. It, it's kind of, they, they, as I say, and it's not a feature necessarily of the banking system. It's a feature of most, um, you know, most industries are seeing, um, most industries, you know, there's a great, you know, Michael Mobison, uh, Michael Mobison put out this report on public to private. You know, yep, it's a great yep. report, and I'm sure most of your listeners have, you know. I, I actually listened before. to the, he did the Invest Like the Best podcast, and I listened to it while I was walking the dog this morning on that. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So did I, actually. Also, I was walking the dog this morning, <laughs> and I listened to it. Um, but he, so he talks, he talks about, um, uh, about the, you know, the, about the, the Herford Doll Index that, that he took, one yep. of them he took, HHI. Well, exactly, and within various industries. And it's just increasing in many industries, and banks are no exception. Um, so for, for, various, for various reasons, um, there's a kind of a concentration of market share. Yeah. Um, and the banks aren't immune to that. Yeah. For banks, I, I, like last year, I, we've traditionally looked at a lot of small banks. And recently, one of my questions over the past, I'd say, three years has been, look, for a bank, like, a lot of the stuff investment into tech and regulation uh, that scales, right? And a lot of smaller banks, their their mobile app was either non-existent or it was awful. And you know they they were used to, hey, we have the bank on the corner, so everybody gives us deposits. And they were losing losing share hand over fist to Bank of America, Wells Fargo, all these guys. There was even an interesting Wall Street Journal article that had uh, it was like an employee at a bank was like, yeah, I had to like shift my deposits to Bank of America so I could do mobile checking, right? Uh, so it makes sense that the small banks are losers, and you see that in a lot of the small bank share prices, which trade way under book value. And I continue to think there needs to be consolidation there. But I'm still, I'm still a little surprised that you didn't see. You know, Robinhood has obviously grown trading accounts accounts like crazy, and there's a lot of issues there. But I'm surprised you didn't see like a SoFi or something really break out in this environment. But let me turn to one other bank before we jump into. I really want to talk SPACs with you for a second as well. One of the Wells Fargo you mentioned, right? And I look at Wells Fargo and I see, hey, this trades at 70% of tangible book, whereas JP Morgan trades at 1.7 times. And the regulators aren't going to let them buy back shares. They aren't going to let them grow. They aren't going to let them do M&A. Like, what, what the heck is the future for Wells Fargo? Uh, it kind of breaks. It's, I, I, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. It kind of breaks, it kind of breaks the tech. You know, it kind of... It, 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 you know, we talk about capital allocation yeah. and, and you go through, you know, and you've just highlighted, you know, the textbook uses of capital. And I'm not sure there's a chapter in the textbook for what happens when the regulator actually <laughs> doesn't allow you to do any of those. So you accumulate capital. Yeah. You, you know, clearly, clearly, you know, clearly, you know, there's a school which, which embraces the view that retained earnings are shareholder earnings. And that, you know, as a owner of Wells Fargo, you own a piece of Wells Fargo. Um, you know, it's the Buffett School. 
and at some stage in the future you will that you will get you will get those earnings back uh, as a shareholder as a partial owner of the business i but there's not and you know and and in an environment where rates are low maybe you are prepared to wait a bit longer for that um notwithstanding the fact that low rates kill the um the kind of front book part of the business uh, on the deposit side but i but it, it's but i it, it, I, I don't know i don't know as i say you know the textbook the chapter hasn't been written um you know the model that i use to kind of describe it is you're a minority shareholder um behind the government and the and 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 when that happens when that happens gov- when that happens shares do trade at a discount yeah um and you know those kind of holding those kind of minority discounts can 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 sustain for a long period of time yeah no it's just it's an interesting one right because jp morgan's trading at 1.7 times book wells fargo's at 70 percent. regulators seem like they won't let them do anything but at the same time i think like you know like six or seven years ago it reminds me of bank of america right around the time when Buffett put in the preferred and the converts and everything. Yeah. And I think the stock's been like, even after all the COVID disruption stuff, I think the stock's up like 4X over that time. And I look at Wells Fargo and I kind of think like, you know, 10 years from now, a lot of this noise will have passed and you'll have bought what's always been one of the preeminent bank franchises in America at 70% of book. Uh, it seems like you do well from there, but at the same time, like it, it just feels like there's something squishy there. I can't quite put my, uh, my finger on. I'm not sure. Uh, Anything else on Wells Fargo or anything here? Or uh, I, there's two newsletters of yours I really want to highlight. I'll switch to. But any last thoughts here? Um, no, except you mentioned something earlier on about, and it comes through valuation, you know, which is, you know, another mental model that kind of got broken, which is that you know things shouldn't trade at a discounted book if you believe, yeah. or you know, or even you know if we kind of if we inject some kind of discount because figuratively you're a minority shareholder um you know so maybe 0.7 a book but there's a lot of bank stocks in europe which just crash way way below that they crash way below that um and 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 you know you mentioned you mentioned earlier on this point about um about about changing i suppose you know every investor's challenge is to change as the market changes and you know one thing we've learned over the past 10 years is that there's no for all the reasons we discussed there's not necessarily because the flip side is you know and again actually the one source of the one use of capital allocation we didn't talk about is is you know simple liquidation or or or, or the takeover of the company itself yeah. um you know often i look at deutsche bank which trades at you know 20 30 percent of book and you kind of think you know again the the the, the classical textbook response would be <laughs> just, just liquidate the company um you know and clearly these banks are too big the flip side of them being big and having consolidated is they're too big to liquidate um and so though and so capital gets trapped it's um, funny it's funny you mentioned deutsche bank because one thing i was kind of thinking about asking you is you know obviously and you wrote about wirecard uh about a month or so ago as well you know, Deutsche Bank, uh, giant German bank, Wirecard, one of the biggest financial frauds in history. Uh, and it comes out recently that Wire, I think it was Wirecard was exploring a merger with Deutsche yeah. Bank, not the other way around, right? But yeah. uh, I wonder, you know, it's a super interesting thing. And anybody who's not 
really deep into, I think a lot of American listeners might not be as familiar with Wirecard as the European listeners, particularly people who don't really follow finance. Maybe you can dive a second into Wirecard, the Deutsche Bank saga, and kind of what you learned from that. Well, that's, I mean, actually, that's really interesting. Um, and it, that's really interesting. And, and it's, I mean, forget, okay, I mean, there's two components of this. One is the fraud component. And two is, you know, just forget for a moment that it was a fraud. You know, here you've got a very high multiple, you know, just wind the clock back. You don't know it's a fraud, but it's a high multiple. This was a company that wants to exploit its multiple um, to, you know, to buy a company um, which was, you know, not very profitable, yep. but but whose assets were, were cheap. So to, to, this was, you know, a classical, you know, I'll come back to the fraud in a second, but it's interesting because what you haven't seen yet is, um, you know, as tech companies buy banks, and I suppose they don't want to, because they don't want to get involved in all the regulation. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about Ant Financial, if you like, because there you've got a model which, which companies in the US and elsewhere are trying to replicate, which is to do the front end piece of banking and therefore be exempt of the regulation, yep. which is kind of back-end oriented to do the distribution of financial services where a lot of the margin is accruing. So there is that model. But um, but obviously that wouldn't have helped Wirecard because Wirecard was a fraud. A and on that fraud. point, I mean, the only thing I would say is there was a great story. We're chatting on September the 3rd and there was a great story in the Financial Times this morning which is which is the first person tale of Dan McCrum, who was the FT journalist who kind of broke. He was onto this. I mean, I was reading his Alphaville posts on Wirecard back in 2015. He was onto this five years ago. And it's just an incredible story. You know, undoubtedly it's going to be made into a into a film. It's an incredible story of an investigative journalist's determination to, to reveal the truth. Yep. And the pressure he was put under by the company, by the establishment, by some sell-side analysts is just, you know, and he starts that story in the Financial Times today, talking about the Comets Bank analyst and the abuse he got from the Comets Bank sell-side analyst um, around that. It's, it's, it's an incredible story. Yeah. You know, one thing, Wirecard, it's such an interesting story. And one thing I worry about is you can almost view it through, I mean, a fraud is a fraud, right? There's no positive light to view a fraud through. But the Wirecard story, like people were saying it was a fraud as early as like 2008, 2009, if I can remember correctly. And I remember reading some of the Alphaville posts in 2015. And the stock was up like 12x since the first allegations of fraud, which were all completely correct. Were And then, you know, regulators were pressuring the journalists and investigating short sellers over this. And it turns out like, no, this was a fraud. And I worry like, you know, there are so many stocks I can think of right now in the US markets and everything where it seems similar, right? The stocks are screaming higher and the short sellers are screaming, hey, this is a fraud. And it's like, it's so easy to think of Wirecard for all of these different things. And I guess the other thing, like, similarly, like these high multiple high flying stocks with the, why not go merge with the lower multiple stocks to take advantage of your, um, take advantage of your multiple you know people mock it but this is what teledyne did 50 years ago and they were one of the best performing stocks of all time right if you've got a big multiple go buy low multiple undervalued things and that'll help you grow into it and you know i think like um you know like a lemonade they, they trade for like 50 times book why not go issue your use your stock to buy an insurer and get into the insurance really get tesla 
use your stocks to go buy Ford or GM and take over all of their engineers and stuff. I don't know if they even need it, but yeah, just stuff like that. Like it's so. Well, it's, I, that's right. And we saw it. I mean, we saw it in the last cycle. We saw it in two thousand with AOL. Um, yeah. So the, right, the president's there. Sure. And people mock that, but like, what would AOL stock if they hadn't bought Time Warner at the time? Like that actually kind of worked out great for AOL shareholders, right? So it. Yeah, I, I know these deals are mocked, but actually, if you're the person with the high multiple, you can create a lot of value by doing this. You can almost save the business. And obviously, Wire Card was trying to save the fraud. Let's switch over to SPACs. So I, I've been obsessed with SPACs. You recently wrote a SPAC uh, piece. You know, This morning, we saw another SPAC deal. KCAC announces a deal to buy an electric vehicle, electric battery manufacturer. Stock goes from $10 to $18. So maybe you can just dive in. You know, what is a SPAC? Why, why are companies going crazy for SPACs right now? And uh, why is this interesting? Well, I think, I think it's interesting. And it, actually, it comes back to this uh, Michael uh, Mobison piece as well, because mm-hmm. he, he talks about this um, shift between private markets and public markets. And over the past 20 years, this fascinating development has occurred whereby public market um, supply has shrunk, number of companies has halved, the demand has increased, um, and on and on the private side, the number of companies, because the barriers to starting up a new company have come down so much, um, the number of new companies has just has just ballooned. And so you've now got seven, seven, not just private companies and like, you know, your mom and pops, but seven, you've got seven times as many private companies that are owned by venture capital or private equity. So not mom and pop to every one public company. Um, and it kind of occurred to me, you know, I, I, you know, my background is public market investor, you know, like you, public markets. Um, and, but I mentioned earlier that I recently dipped my toe into private markets as an angel investor in fintech. And it kind of, you know, I kind of creaked open the door into this market and took a peep inside. And it's, it's, a, it's a different market. You know, I meet with venture capital folks and, and they, um, you, you know, their, their background is, and certainly the companies that choose to partner with uh, venture capital uh, firms, in my experience, have have prioritized those venture capitalists that have got an entrepreneurial track record. A lot of them are entrepreneurs. Yep. Now, you know, the public markets, you know, occasionally you'd come across a, a, a guy that used to be, you know, an operator, and many of them make very, very good public market investors. But it's not it's not a bigger as a, a factor in public markets as, as being kind of an entrepreneur is in, in, in private markets. Very, very different. You know, it kind of feels as well that, you know, certainly very, very early stage venture and the venture capital method evaluation is all about looking to the future, you know, whether it's TAM or whether whatever it might be and discounting it back. Yep. Whereas in, in public in public markets, we kind of look to the, you know, we, we start at the present and we, we, we model forwards or we look at the share price and we, um, we kind of, we, we carve out a path forwards. We start the present and we go for very, very different um, markets. And, 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 you know, that's fine. And, and they kind of, you know, they coexist. They've got different investors. They've got different companies. They've got different pools of capital. But they come together when public, they come together historically through the IPO. Um, and 
you know, I kind of my metaphor was kind of like the wardrobe in you know the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It's kind of Narnia. It was kind of you know on the one side you've got you know us public market investors, the humans, you know, and you've got this wardrobe which is kind of the IPO market. And you kind of go through into the other side. Actually, this is more spec, but you kind of go through into the other side, and the, actually you know you literally have the unicorns on the other side in the land of Narnia. And and what, and what the spec does, and so you know historically you have to wait for the private market company to come to you. And yep. they through the IPO process, and you know, and I've kind of been involved in that in the past, both on the sell side, um, pre well, on the sell side where we roadshowed some of those companies, and on the buy side, obviously, yeah, I mentioned Visa before, which was an IPO a long time ago that we were involved in. Um, and then you've got the SPAC, which is it's kind of the opposite instead of waiting, you know, the private company to come to you you can actually send your scout in through that wardrobe to go and look in that world and bring one you know pull, bring one back out again send him in with 200 million dollars and have him just- <laughs> exactly exactly so you know in, the- in theory there's some kind of logic to that um it, you know in practice there's a lot of drawbacks you know and i know you, you've written you've written in your blog about some of those drawbacks and you know there are a whole list of a whole load of drawbacks um you know, obviously it's difficult to create you know, financial engineering, if you like, has got a financial engineering tends to be quite a cyclical phenomenon. Um, and to the extent this is a manifestation of financial engineering, you know, it might reflect where we are in the cycle. Um, but the, but the, but the root cause, i.e. there are, you know, private companies out there, um, you know, and, and, and there's a lack of, and there's a demand for them in the public markets the root cause maybe is credible, but you know some of the financial engineering may not be. Yeah, so I'll just give a, a quick example. So you know, a SPAC is a company they they IPO and investors will give them two hundred million dollars, and the SPAC just goes hunting for a company to merge with, right? And uh, if they can't find a company merge, the investors will get their two hundred million dollars back. And a lot of companies have done this recently. You know, DraftKings came public through a SPAC. Uh, Virgin, Virgin, it's space. What the SPCE is the ticker. It's the Virgin Galactic Space Enterprise. Yeah. Did it? Nikola has been one of the most high flying ones. And recently, investors have gotten very excited about these. Right? You know, it, these things have ten dollars per share in cash. They're announcing deals, and their stocks are going from ten to fifteen, twenty. Nikola famously went ten to seventy. And I guess when I look at this, a I see like just awful incentives. Right? Like. They go, they have to announce a deal or else the SPAC liquidates and the founders lose all their money. And B, I look and I see like, you know, Nikola is the poster child for this. Nikola has no revenues whatsoever. And people just got really excited for an electric vehicle space. And I don't know about you, when I, when I see this, I guess there's two things, I think. The first thing is, do you feel like it reminds you at all of the, the dot-com bubble? You know, like people are coming without a business model and investors are just giving them billion dollar valuations. Yes, it, 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 it does. But then... It does, but but these but they sustain those valuations in the public market. So you yeah. could argue, you could argue, you know, there's a, you could argue, you know, somebody's exploiting someone, um, and that's always the case in in, in a bubble. Um, um, but I, you know, I, look, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think some of them, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I've, you know, I, you know, I look at stocks historically where, you know, I think at point three times book value, there's value there. The market is not interested. You know, it's interested in thirty times revenues rather than point three times book value. Yeah, I guess the other thing I, I've been thinking a lot recently. Look, if you and I might have to write an article or tweet this at some point, but like, you know, last year we were tried to go public and uh, they filed their IPO. 
They got laughed out of the room and it, it eventually led, you know, WeWork was trying to go public at 50 billion and eventually led to the founder left. The whole company had to be restructured. Like the business model was not sustainable. And I, I think now WeWork's worth a couple billion or something. Who knows if they make it or not. They say they're profitable now, but uh, you know, WeWork collapsed because they couldn't IPO. And I wonder if today, if you could fast forward, if you could take that WeWork IPO fast forward a year, you know, if WeWork tried to do a SPAC, I wonder if a SPAC would go crazy for a WeWork, uh, a WeWork deal, you know, and if WeWork would have sustained a hundred billion IPO and be on the verge of taking over the whole commercial real estate sector. Well, Matt, so Matt Levine of Bloomberg wrote exactly that. He said he never, he wrote a great article about SPACs. He said he never understood SPACs until WeWork. Um, and um, our mutual friend, Bern Hobart, as he talked about, I think he's talked about the, an option on hype in this sense, i.e., you know, the advantage a SPAC has over an IPO is that you can do it very, very quickly. Uh, and so, you know, if that's WeWork and it's let's do it so quickly that no one actually looks at the books. Yeah. Or whether it's, or, or whether it's um, you know, I'm not sure a fraud could get through, but uh, but but you know, certainly, certainly the scrutiny required, the bar is a lot lower and and stuff would get through that wouldn't have done otherwise, you know, cap, cap, you know, buyer, buyer beware. Well, you just made me sad because I thought I had a very original thought and I read everything both Berna and Matt published. So it probably just burrowed in the back of my brain and came out as you were discussing it. Uh, you mentioned you're an angel investor in fintech. Maybe you could talk, a, you know, what do you, what type of stuff do you look for in fintech and how, how's that angel investing been going? So, no, so it's, it's, as I say, as I say, it's very interesting. It was a completely new market to me. Um, and, you know, coming at it from the the fin perspective rather than the tech perspective makes me a little bit unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the way I thought about it, there are kind of four business models within fintech, um, and three of them are not that interesting, and one of them is. Um, you know, one of them is just a, you know a nicer user, a nice a nicer front end. It's kind of yep. very consumer orientated. You know, a nicer. You know, we'll go. We'll go after millennials, and we'll be. We'll have. A, we'll have a better UX. Um, and the first wave of fintechs were revolved largely ar- around that, and many of them now still. You know, that's a big piece of it. You know, it's not lemonade, which you mentioned earlier. It's not not entirely that, but certainly, you know, there's a kind of story to it. You know, the, the, the kind of Robin Hood, the Robin Hood story. Yep. Um, Get your renter's insurance in two minutes. Be able to trade stocks in two seconds in a friendly way. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, that's the second thing. The second thing is speed. It's the second thing is speed. So the you know, first thing is UX. Second thing is speed. Um, and and that's the, the, and the and the third thing is which is less interesting is regulatory arbitrage. So you know, so Chime is able is, is able to grow so quickly because it's able to offer you know because interchange is higher because it falls below the Dodd Frank kind of threshold yeah. around around interchange. You know, there are tons of examples of uh, companies uh, in the US and elsewhere which basically and they've emerged post financial crisis. We were talking about regulation earlier, which are able to kind of arbitrage some of these regulatory loopholes. Um, you know, whether that's sustainable, probably, probably not. I was trying to think of an example, as you said it, but in, in my, in my history, I found regulatory arbitrage, you can make a lot of money for a short period of time, but eventually right. the, it, 
either the regulators come on it or your competitors say, hey, these guys are making money. You need to close this loophole. And the loophole gets closed and it, it generally ends up being a zero, sometimes less than a zero because you have to pay penalties for uh, exploiting the regulators at some point. Exactly, exactly. Um, and the, but the final one, which is interesting, is kind of new, which is just new products. It's like stuff, you know, it's, it's not about, it's just, it's just stuff that couldn't have been innovated in the old banking system or in the old financial system. So whether that is, uh, and often that can be linked to speed um, because the financial system didn't have the wherewithal to, um, didn't have the infrastructure to offer that kind of speed. So, you know, there are some examples around, um, you know, some of the things I'm interested in, for example, are u- user acquisition finance. Mm-hmm. So there are some companies, there's a, a, a private company in the US I'm not involved in, but a private company in the U.S. called uh, ClearBank, okay. uh, and they do they do they, it's, they do user they do user acquisition finance. So a you know a, a you know a SaaS company or a, or a or any tech you know wouldn't have to be a starter would come and say, look, we, we these are our unit economics. You know, we've got the data to show you how those unit economics look. Um, and, you know, and we know the return on investment, if we were able to acquire customers is, you know, 4x, 5x, we want to, we want to borrow um, in order to, uh, to exploit, in order to exploit that ROI, um, you know, and a bank doesn't know what, <laughs> doesn't know what we're talking about. And there are models evolving to provide that kind of financing. And, and this uh, is something, Burn, I, I believe you wrote about it two days ago as well, right? Like, all these SaaS companies, they, they have to fund with extremely expensive equity, which uh, kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, but it, the, a SaaS product is actually a natural for debt, as you're saying, right? Like it's a recurring cash flow revenue stream. How it really should be financed is, hey, we need to go spend $100 to get users. We should get $100 of debt to finance that because it'll result in $50 of cash in every year. And that's great for a debt product. That makes tons of sense. Yep. Exactly. So I'm involved in, so, one, so I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm an investor in a, it's a UK based, but the market is European um, company, which does this for the gaming industry. So, okay. you know, what, what one of the features of, of COVID, obviously people are, I mean, just gaming's obviously. There's a whole gaming theme like there. World of Warcraft or gaming like uh, sports betting? Uh, like World of Warcraft. Okay. And, and exactly. So games, so app, typically, you know, app based games um, where, where the company um, will publish a game, can see that the uh, customers are, are ramping, and wants to, um, and wants to borrow to fund that customer ramp. And, and um, they're basically borrowing to get Facebook advertisements, Twitter advertisements to get that, to get app installs. Precisely, yeah. exactly. So they know exactly. So they they know exactly. So they know, uh, you know, because the data, because you know, Facebook and and the, and the app store make their data available um, to third parties you know we, we we can see that traction in real time uh, and that makes it a very very interesting kind of uh, collateral to to let to lend against um, you know so that's one sort and there's another company I'm involved in which does um, and it kind of wants to it's kind of social mission is to stamp out payday lending and one of the ways to do that is to um, is to provide employees with a drawdown on their salary so yeah you know in the you know in the you know people typically get paid either on a bi-weekly basis or, or on, on a monthly basis you know there are various solutions out there now and 
this comes back to companies not having the infrastructure to be able to pay people on a continuous daily basis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, something you know, something you know, Uber was obviously uh, able to do with a different model. Um, and there are various innovations out there, various solutions which allow, which kind of insert themselves between the employer and the employee, which kind of enable this. Um, so salary finance is a big one. There's another one I'm involved in in the UK. And how are you sourcing? How are you sourcing your uh, angel investment deals? Well, this is I'm not so. A lot of those are on, on network. So people, obviously, you know, kind of twenty years in financial services, I've built up a network. Of, a little bit of one, yeah. Of contact. So uh, some of it, a lot of it, is through 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 that. Um, you know, I saw Revolut, uh, which is a UK based. They're now in the US. They've got thirteen million customers. It's a challenger Bank. Um, a little bit skeptical about that current valuation valuation of these challenger banks but i was shown that quite early um kind of series a um so it just kind of this net net network network it's people are you know coming, coming back to this being a new market to me as a public market investor you know one of the criteria is you know is there somebody there that i trust is there somebody there that i know and that i trust um, and so that's very important I think it was your last uh, your last edition of the newsletter where you mentioned uh, you were looking at the FANG equivalents of finance, and you said I, I think it was because the Goldman CFO he said, "Hey, we are we consider ourselves the Google of finance, right?" And uh, you said, "Hey, maybe Bloomberg is the Facebook of finance." Did, have you come up with any kind of other FANGs of finance? Well, it's just a bit of fun, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. I was a little bit tongue in cheek. I think he was actually what I didn't write on that post was that he was and. and you know, I suspect the biggest competition increasingly for Goldman in the recruitment market is Google. I was going <laughs> so, to say the same thing, yeah. Right, right. So he, you know, he, clearly he's incentivized to try, you know, hey, you know, when he goes to Harvard, which is where he made the presentation, you know, hey, we're, um, we're the Google of finance. Um, but yeah, there are, you know, it's a bit of fun. I think, um, you know, I think in Amex is a, an interesting um, um metaphor for um or rather apple is the interesting metaphor for amex yep. um with some you know similarities great there. yep great brand you know possibly slightly more affluent leaning uh, a closed ecosystem you know amex historically has um has presented itself as a closed ecosystem so that's one you know, JP Morgan maybe is Amazon. They're, they're both they're involved both on the consumer side and the enterprise side. The um, you know the merchant solutions business, which is you know a fascinating business, is you know maybe a little bit like the AWS. It's um, funny you say that because you remember what like 15, 20 years ago, Citigroup said they wanted to be the uh, the supermarket. Was it the supermarket of finance or something? So when you say JP Morgan is Amazon, the everything store, I think, oh my God, like the historical correlations there are, uh, are not kind. Yeah, no, that's true. But you know, as I say, it's a bit of fun. Actually, you know, your answer is really ant in America, in China. Um, yeah. I think, you know, if I look at the US companies that are most closely aligned to ant uh, in terms of replicating it, it could be square. Um, but and uh, as you know, and and and, and you know, and has and has basically and has basically done a job of 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 aggregator. You know, it's interesting actually. You know, so um, Ben Thompson, who writes Strategia, yeah. um, back in I was I was actually I did a search on Strategia to see what he's written about fintech. Doesn't write about fintech that much. And actually, he wrote a post in 2016 when Lending Club 
um, kind of almost collapsed when the, the CEO of Lending Club was kicked out. There was a um, kind of there was um, wasn't I don't, know, I don't know if you call it fraud, but there was kind of a, a big ethical issue they came up with, uh, and the CEO was ousted. Um, and he kind of then used that as an opportunity to talk, talk about to talk about fintech, and he, and he and he talked about whether fintech really lends itself to aggregation theory, which is his yeah. big theory about platform companies. Um, and he said no because you've got two because in the case of Lending Club, you, you, you've got you've got your borrowers on the one side, and you've got your savers, or your investors on the other side. And it wasn't clear, you know, which which they were aggregating. Yep. Um, with Ant, and he hasn't written about this, I don't know why, but Ant is very, very clearly aggregating, um, you know, financial service customers. Um, and it did it. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, and it did it through the way Square is possibly doing it with Cash App. It did it through a payments mechanism that wasn't by itself very profitable. All of the value accrued to Alibaba wasn't profitable. Um, it's kind of net take rate is like it's a basis point right now, but it was sticky and they got consumers into the ecosystem. And once they were there, they were able to offer other financial products. And, and this is the supermarket analogy. You know, it's not there. They started by doing their own financial products. They realized very early on that regulation would come down too heavily if they were to do that. So now they have a panel of banks and a panel of insurance companies and their take rates are pretty high. You know, it just it shows you how much of the value. You know, one of the interesting things about banking is that, you know, a lot of industries have become modularized. You know, banking is one of the last kind of vertically integrated. Mm-hmm. We were talking before about the branch, you know, the same company owns the branches. It, you know, it does, it does the whole stack. And it's one of the only industries left that kind of does that on a vertically integrated basis. And one of the reasons is a lot of the value is at the front end. It is at the yep. customer end. And so Anne just kind of recognized that and that's, and that's what it's doing. And no, right I now. I can't wait for someone to write a book on Ant because the history is fascinating. Like Alibaba literally steal the, they literally steal, they own Ant and it's stolen from them, right? Or yeah. they steal it from their shareholders. And yes. at one time, as you said, they, they aggregate their money market fund grows so big. I think it's like got basically all of the money in China and the regulators have to crack down. It has so much money. Uh, it, it's just a crazy story. I'll run, I'm going to run one uh, one comparison by you. If I told you Robinhood, if I said Robinhood, and I, I debate about this a lot, do you think Robinhood is the Tesla of finance, or do you think it's the Netflix of finance? What way? How, how is it? How is it? How is it, it could be the Tesla because it's got a sleek app. It's beloved by retail investors, and I think the back end might be a little spotty, and there might be a little bit of security issues with it. It might be skirting some regulations, which I think all would be fair to say that all of that would apply to Tesla. It could also yes. be the Netflix just because, um, oh, and Robinhood is hated by institutional investors, loved by retail investors. It could be the Netflix because I think a lot of people don't understand the economics of it. And, you know, people look at it, hey, they give away free trades. How do they make money? Netflix, they burn cash. How do they make money? Well, they're making money. It's just values accruing in different ways. And because, uh, you know, Robinhood, I think a lot of investors are doing it more for entertainment than actually for long-term uh, investing per purposes though the way all the Robinhood stocks have performed they're they might be doing it for long-term investing purposes so which do you think it would be 
Yeah, I, look, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I think I'm a skeptic. Um, I'm a skeptic of Tesla as well. Um, I, I suspect there's some similarities between the two there. And, and, and this idea that, I mean, just the name Robin Hood, I mean, this idea that this was, so they don't file financial statements regularly enough. They do file a balance sheet once a year um, because they, they have to as a regulated uh, as a regulated broker. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at their, the trouble is that the last filed balance sheet was end of 2019. Uh, and if you look at it, so, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of out of date. It's pre COVID. Um, and it's, and it's just a balance sheet. But if you look at it, they're doing, they're doing a lot of margin lending. There's a lot of margin lending that's going on in there. And, and this idea that they are, um, you know, st- stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly it's come under a lot of scrutiny uh, anyway, given the, uh, given the behavior of, uh, and the demographic of their, of their customer base. Um, but, it, you know, I, I'd love to see, I'd love to see their latest balance sheet, put it that way. I'm just surprised, you know, cause they had the issue where a lot of their users were able to use They called it the unlimited margin hack on Robinhood. And I just can't believe that, uh, it, that, that issue got discovered and publicized and that the site was still allowed to operate. I mean, I'm not trying to be too old funny, but that's literally how you get like stock market crashes, right? People use unlimited margins to take wildly outsized positions. And then the moment that a stock dips down mass liquidations. And I I can't believe that that happened and regulators kind of didn't step in and demand a lot more than a pound of flesh from them. Yeah, look, and it's interesting. I think, you know, and again, you know, having looked at FinTech and looked at financial services, one of the features is that there is a window it comes back to the regulatory arbitrage point. Mm-hmm. There's a window whereby there's a window whereby firstly regulators tend to be slower than the market. Yep. And you know, when the market's in kind of hyperdrive and things grow as quickly as they're growing, uh, it, it takes a while for the regulator to catch up. Um, and, and secondly, you know, there's a point below which the regulator is not interested. Yeah. Um, it's too small. Now, now Robinhood right now. It's gone above the parapet on, on, on both on both of those. So I suspect, I suspect you know the regulatory risk is increasing, and that's not a linear increase. Yep, a hundred percent agree. Hundred percent agree. Uh, last question I ask everybody on this podcast: uh, Anyone else you'd recommend for the podcast or anything? So there's a few guys. I mean, I've loved a number of the guys you've had on already, and you know, I'm well done for doing this. This is you know a great project. No, I, I mean, you included everyone on here has been super sharp and uh, I've kind of been lucky to have them. So it, it's been a great experience so far. Um, but there's a, there's a few guys, uh, you, I, you may know them. So Scott Miller is an investor that I uh, think very, very highly of. Yep. Over um, at uh, Green, Green. I can never remember if it's Green Haven or Green Road or Greenwood because they've got all those. Yeah. He's, uh, he's Green. Yeah, actually, it's a good point about Greenwood. Yeah, so it's Green Haven Road. Um, I, I'm an LP. My kind of d- disclaimer, I'm an LP in his... Uh, he runs a partners fund. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, another investor that I think very highly of is uh, Fred Liu uh, okay. of um, of Hayden Capital. Again, Hayden's he's been all, fantastic. I love their letters. Uh, I, we've exchanged emails, but yeah, he'd be great. Yeah, he's he's fa- he's fantastic. And um, and there's another one who's kind of my neck of the woods, uh, London-based Mark Walker, Tollymore uh, Capital, um, who's very very thoughtful. He writes great letters as well. Actually, I don't know if he makes them. I don't know if he's on Twitter even actually, but he's he he he's big on content and he makes his letters available and he's um he's he's a very interesting investor also coming from value school but who's looked at. 
I, I think I've read some of his letters before. Yeah, I can definitely reach out to him as well. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, yeah, I mean, but keep it from your, and keep it going. As I say, this is a fantastic project and I've loved all of the shows you put out. Cool. Well, hey, I appreciate it, Mark. Uh, net interest is great. I'll be sure to include a link in the show notes so everybody can go subscribe. You know, it's a free product and I, I love it. So I think everyone who listens to this will love it too. And Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Great. Thank you. Thanks.